when it comes to community estate personal injury damages, we have a different rule. It's one of the very few exceptions to the equal division of community property. Community estate personal injury damages pursuant to family code section 2603 are to be awarded to the spouse who is injured unless the interest of justice requires some different apportionment, but the injured spouse can never receive less than one half of those proceeds. Hey, this is Sean Kernakin, and you're tuned into Civil Action. This is the podcast of Cabotech LLP. We're a firm in downtown LA that does a lot of different work on the plaintiff's side. And we put this podcast on so we can share with you what we are learning about the law. Our weekly podcast is dedicated to important topics for lawyers and issues in the law. We have guests. We talk about recent cases. We talk about trends. We talk about practice areas. We try to help people be better lawyers and learn about the law. In some ways, you can look at this as a 15 to 20 minute law school class each week. Welcome back to Civil Action. This is Brian Kabatek. Today's topic is the intersection between family law, community property, and plaintiff's work, personal injury cases and personal injury type cases. My usual co-host, John Karnikian, isn't with us today. Instead, we have one of our senior associates, Stephanie Charlin. Hi, I'm happy to be here. And Stephanie is going to be joining me today as we explore this interesting topic with our very special guest, Ron Brote. Ron is the immediate past president of the Los Angeles County Bar. Ron has been in numerous leadership positions in the family law bar and the organized bar in Los Angeles for years. Ron has his own firm, Brote, Gross, and Fishbine. Did I pronounce that correct, Ron? You did. Thanks, Brian. And Ron is one of the deans of the family law bar here in Southern California. Very experienced. If you know anything about the family law bar, you know that there's a very small group at the very top. Ron is certainly in that group. Uh, has numerous celebrity clients, high net worth individuals. He knows this stuff backwards and forwards. And I thought that this would be a great topic for us to cover today. So let me just start with kind of a working hypothetical. And then I'm going to have Ron and Stephanie talk a little bit about the issues themselves. But you're handling a very high personal and personal injury case, very seriously injured man who gets injured in a case with clear liability. That man's married. He has a wife. Maybe she witnessed the accident, so she has a negligent infliction of emotional distress claim as well. Maybe she didn't, so she has a loss of consortium claim. In either hypothetical, she has a loss of consortium claim. And they, at the time of the accident, they were happily married. The case goes on for a couple of years. And somewhere before trial or settlement, they get divorced. They separate, they get divorced. Whole host of issues for us to talk about there when it comes to your responsibility as a plaintiff's lawyer and what you do and how it works. So let's kind of go from there and Ron, just just start talking about what we're dealing with here. This, this unusual fact, because most plaintiff lawyers, unless it's personal, don't ever encounter family law issues. Well, thank you, Brian. The issue of what happens with a personal injury claim brings about One of the anomalies in California matrimonial law, all of us learned at one time or another that community property is 
property that's received somewhere between the date of marriage and the date of separation, whatever that word means. In your hypothetical, you have a claim, but no recovery. And so the, the question I suppose is first, whether the cause of action is community property or whether it does not ripen into community property until after you receive a settlement or payment after a verdict or more likely after the appeal on the verdict is resolved. Community property in California is pretty simple. Anything acquired by either spouse between the date of marriage and the date of separation is community property unless it's an inheritance or a gift, which this would not be. And if it's community property, it's divided equally between the parties. Family law court's mission under the family code is to marshal, protect, and preserve the community estate. When it comes to community estate personal injury damages, we have a different rule. It's one of the very few exceptions to the equal division of community property. Community estate personal injury damages pursuant to family code section 2603 are to be awarded to the spouse who is injured unless the interests of justice require some different apportionment, but the injured spouse can never receive less than one half of those proceeds. There is a corollary provision, which is family code section 781, which essentially provides that if the cause of action arises, in this case, let's call it the accident, the air crash, the, the gas leak, whatever, whatever it would be, if it arises before the date of marriage or after the date of separation, it will be separate property and, and nothing that we're going to talk about today would apply. So we're going to make the assumption that the cause of action, the act, occurred sometime after the marriage. In your hypothetical, Brian, you wouldn't have the issue of whether the parties are separated because you said they're happily married. The date of separation is a huge issue in family law. Yeah, let's and talk let, let's talk about that because that's an interesting issue too. You and I talked about that a little bit as we were preparing for today. So there is a long line of cases that talks about uh, when parties get separated. Interestingly enough, uh, until recently, there was no family code section that defines separation. Instead, there was simply a provision that says income or assets received while living separate and apart are separate property. So we had to look to case law to help us decide when people are separated. Did you have to be out of the house? Did you have to be out of the bedroom? Did you have to have a filing? Did you have to have a banner flying over Santa Monica Beach saying, I'm done, we're done, I'm out? What would constitute separation? And it was all very fact determinative. I've tried multiple cases involving date of separation where the, the single issue bifurcated has taken two or three weeks to try because it's so fact determinative. We all thought that whether you were in the house or not in the house would be a fact, but not a very important fact. To, to ascertain whether you're separated or not. Then there was this outlier case called Norviel that seemed to say, if you haven't moved out, you're not separated. 
And so those presumptions about the acquisition of community property would still apply because you're still living in the same house. That but fortunately, case, that's just one case. So you can disregard that, right? And we did. And the commentators did. And, and the people who did the annual family law CLE programs disregarded it. There was one group of people who decided not to disregard it. The California Supreme Court. And in marriage of Davis, the California Supreme Court, relying on Norviel, essentially said, if you're still living in the same house, you're not separated. That caused an uproar in the California family law bar and not to be outdone, the California legislature essentially overruled the California Supreme Court by passing Family Code Section 70, which defines the date of separation. But even still, there's no bright line test. You still have to somehow determine under the facts whether you have a separation. Section 70 says that in order to have separation, there must be an expression and then conduct consistent with the intent to end the marriage. That's a wiggly concept, which is a trial lawyer's delight. So you have to rely on both the code and the case law still. Absolutely. And the facts. Well, and how all of those things in- interrelate. So if let me bring it back to my- If you're a family lawyer who likes to try cases, it's really a delight because it is so fact-intensive. Sorry, Brian. Well, that's okay. Our, our eight listeners probably try to stay away from family law court as much as they can, but I, no, I my think- wife the- is, My wife is listening, so we have nine. One time, but thank you. We appreciate Linda's listening to our, our podcast today. There's sure. a shout out for Linda. So sure. now back to the hypothetical. So happily married couple, two years later, you're in your office. We're in our office, not in your office. We're in our office. And we get a phone call from one or the other who says- I'm done. I'm out of that relationship. The first question you're going to have to ask is, well, are you actually out of the house? Have you separated? Where are you? What are the facts? That's got to be one of the first things you want to know, right? Right. The next thing I want to know is, is where's the case? So Stephanie, where in the hypothetical is the case at this point? Well, it sounds like they're about to try the case. We don't have a verdict yet. We haven't settled the case yet. So I'm not quite sure what we're supposed to do if, if we proceed, if we have to stay the trial, if we wait till get till we get a verdict and then figure it out. I mean, Ron, what, what do you suggest we do if, if we haven't received a verdict yet and we just get this call that they've separated? What do you suggest? So the careful plaintiff's lawyer is going to ask for mutual instructions. You're going to assume, listen, I have I have what appears to be a community estate injury claim. It's going to be a community claim, but it's subject to this odd statute, 2603, that says it's going to go to the person who's injured unless the interests of judgment otherwise apply. That will not be your decision, and it will not be the the civil court's decision. What you want, of course, is not to violate any duty that you owe to your client, or in the off chance, maybe clients, because if if you're proceeding with a conflict waiver and you have both the primary injured party and then what I'm calling the secondarily injured party with a loss of consortium. Yeah, that's you, an important you, issue. Let's put that off to the side for a second, because we do well, want to talk about that. Claims, and you don't want the last thing you want to do is get caught in the middle. You just want to try your case, maximize the recovery 
and then leave it up to the respective family law lawyers or the family law court to divvy up whatever is left after you've prevailed. So in other words, don't don't change anything at trial. Don't change the jury instructions or anything like that. Just proceed, proceed as you normally would and almost just deal with it after you get a verdict. Well, what do you do, Stephanie, though? Now you're going into trial and let's assume you represent both of the client, both the, the husband and the wife in the case. What happens, and this is sort of outside of Ron's area of, of knowledge, but what do you tell the jury? What do you say to the jury? This couple's getting divorced. How do you deal with that? What are your thoughts? That's a great question. I don't know. I mean. It's it's a tough situation because can you blame the the separation on the accident? Okay, those are outside of what we're really talking about today, but the jury may or may not find out about it. It may or may not affect your verdict, but now we get a verdict. Okay, we've got a great result. Let's assume the other side says we're not going to appeal and we're just going to simply give you a check. Ron, what do we do? Don't disperse the proceeds. You want mutual instructions from the parties or you you want something from the family law court. Okay, so let me throw a little monkey in the wrench here. We know from our own experience, both of us being, you know, presidents of the LA County Bar, that something like 70% of the litigants in family law court in Los Angeles Superior Court are unrepresented. Let's assume our clients are unrepresented. What do we do? Well, Brian, you'll probably call me and ask that question of me on the on the telephone. And what you'll probably do is arrange to have someone represent one of the two, because they can't represent both, simply to go to court, the family law court for instructions. So let's circle back around to this, this sort of elephant in the room here. Our practice is to get a conflict waiver at the outset of the case when we're representing both the husband and wife in a, in a personal injury case. We have conflict language. We lay it out there. Some lawyers do that. Some lawyers don't. But let's assume you've been careful. You're a careful lawyer. You've done that. And of course, when they come into your office on day one, Stephanie, these are happy people, or at least they're, they're, they're not happy because it's a horrible incident, but they're happily married people. You have no way of knowing you've got the conflict. But now you get that phone call, Stephanie. And what's your first reaction when you find out that they're getting divorced? Well, make sure there's a conflict waiver, that's for sure. And if not, we'll get one. I mean, you have to educate both parties, both the husband and the wife, explain to them the situation, explain to them the conflict and get them to agree if they want to, you know, waive the conflict and basically just educate them on how the next steps are going to proceed under this new. Much more difficult when they're now getting divorced on day one, it's much easier to get that conflict waiver on after they've separated. I can't stand him anymore. That's the call you get. That's a much more difficult situation. Ron, have any suggestions? Well, I have some thoughts. When this case came into your office, what is the conflict that you're having them waive? Right. I, I was unclear whether they signed a conflict waiver at the beginning or not. Well, the conflict is always that there could be a push-pull. There could be a limited amount of money. It's like anytime you're representing multiple parties, there's this potentiality of a conflict. It's, it's a potential conflict on day one. And it's just good practice to have the client sign a conflict waiver. But now the conflicts actually occurred. Well, it's a different conflict though, isn't it? So it's not, it's not just that they're getting divorced. It's now we're gonna be dealing with two separate amounts of money that presumptively are going to be awarded to each of us 
to which the other will raise a claim that it's in the interest of justice for me to get my hand in your pocket. So, so let's just say that one of the parties, let's say it's the husband who has the loss of consortium claim and, and you're asking for a million dollars. And let's say that the high earning wife has a $10 million injury claim consisting of pain and suffering, loss of past wages, diminished earning capacity, future wages, and, and whether it's by settlement. Settlement is even harder, it seems to me, because there's so many judgment calls. And as you're trying to massage the claims to maximize the recovery, you may be changing the respective parties' interest in the amount because of that thing called interest of justice. For example, while we're married, our earnings are community. When we're separated, my earnings are, are separate. Future earnings post-separation are always separate. So the, the party who's urging interest of justice wants to argue as much as possible for community-oriented damages, loss of earnings from the time of the accident to the date of separation. We had to hire the incurring of medical expenses. We had to hire special people to help us survive. Our lifestyle changed. We had to spend out so much money. The interest of justice would be for the community to be reimbursed so the community would get a bigger share. Your client who's injured says, oh no, let's try and get as much as we can pushed into a future earning designation. The spouse on the other side says, oh no, and now your two clients are really at it with an economic incentive to make the other one wrong. And there you are as the plaintiff's attorney, just trying to maximize your recovery, never thinking that you're allocating your theories that your allocation of the theories between your two clients will end up with differing amounts of money. Yeah, this could be the single biggest asset that the community has in the right size personal injury case. Well, the first thing that comes to my mind is I would immediately advise all the, both the clients in writing this conflict and tell them that I would be happy to keep representing you, but you have to waive this conflict. And I would strongly recommend that they get the advice of independent counsel. I think that's probably about the smartest thing you could do, and then just handle the case. What are your thoughts? I think he was asking you, Stephanie. I agree with you. I think I think that's basically what I was trying to say before. But then, what happens if they say I don't agree? Then what? I think you got yourself in a pickle. I mean, it exceeds my my range of knowledge as is an ethicist, which I'm not. But I would certainly call somebody who is knowledgeable about ethics, like Ellen Pansky is on the my speed dial. And I'd say, what do you do with this situation? You know, the sad fact is you may have to withdraw. I mean, it may cause you to withdraw if they won't allow if one spouse or the other says, I'm not going to let you continue to represent my husband and me in the same case. Could you potentially represent one and not the other? Not without the other's consent right? Then you're choosing one client over the other. In Ron's hypothetical, where the wife has this $10 million loss of earning claim, she was the injured person. You've got yourself in a pickle unless the husband says, that's fine. You can go ahead and represent my wife. I'll waive it. You can represent her. I'll get somebody to represent me if you can get him to agree to that. But I think that's a, 
I think it's a tall order. You know, it, it's really interesting because the knee-jerk reaction to the issue is, from a family law perspective, oh, it doesn't matter. Mr. Personal or Ms. Personal Injury Lawyer, plaintiff's attorney, just go maximize the recovery. We'll pull that into the family law case and we'll be able to. to yeah, that's that's to, my to, argument to the client is my job, since I'm on a contingency, is to do the best job I can for you. Possibly I'm going to do the best job. But as you well know, Ron, having done, you've been a family law lawyer for what, 35, 40 years? Yeah. People, when they're going through divorce, are not generally getting along. Did you know that? I've been told that. So those of us who do a fair amount of litigation in the family law setting have come to understand that adversaries in a family law case make strange bedfellows, as the saying goes. See, it's way more sophisticated than just let's maximize the recovery, because the recovery is going to have component. Depending on how you monetize the components in your plaintiff's claim may have a determining effect as to what the family law court will ultimately do. That's where I think the sophisticated, complex, nuanced conflict arises. So I'm going to pivot the story now, and we're going to change the facts a little bit because our firm handles an awful lot of property cases, fire cases arising out of these wildfires in California, insurance cases, first party insurance cases, house burns down. So now there's not necessarily a personal injury claim. There might be, but there's not necessarily a personal injury claim. It's just the the community asset burned to the ground, and we're fighting with either a utility or the insurance company or both. Stephanie, set that up a little bit more and talk about the benefits that come out of those kinds of cases. Benefits with respect to what they can recover? Right, yeah. Yeah, so if you lose your home because of a fire um, and there's a third party responsible for, in this case, I think, you know, we can, let's just say for sake of example, Southern California Edison's responsible for something, the fire that caused home to burn down. They can recover under California law, the cost of the rebuild of their home, the cost to repair their landscape, their trees, their plants, their shrubs, any other structures on the property offset by any proceeds from insurance. In addition to that, if there's any other consequential damages, like including emotional distress, but anything else that you can really tie to the fire you're out of pocket for, or that is a damage that's you know quantifiable, you can claim that. And then let's say for the sake of example, that the couple's house burns down and they have to build back their house, but they're getting divorced. That's a wonderful hypothetical that I just don't really know in that, like what, what we would do in that situation. Ron, that's where you're supposed to jump in and tell us what to do. Oh, so from the property analysis, if we had a community property home and it's been destroyed, the property damage portion of the recovery is going to be community, isn't it? Because the proceeds of the loss of a community asset will follow the characterization of that asset. So if the house was community, the proceeds are going to be community. In the simplest case- It doesn't um, matter that they got divorced after the fire? No, because the asset will be whatever the asset was. And, and that really just makes perfect sense, right? If we had a community house, as of our date of separation, let's say we have $2 million worth of equity in our home, and then the home burns down. How could any allocation of those proceeds make any sense at all other than 
community proceeds resulting from the loss of the community asset. You'll have differing damages though, because you know you just said, well, what about emotional distress? So if there's an emotional distress claim, you're back to community estate personal injury damages that we discussed in the first part of our talk this afternoon. Okay, we're kind of coming to the end of our time here. This is an interesting topic. Stephanie, any final thoughts before we let Ron close out with his final thoughts? I have another question. Go for it. Same hypothetical, but what if the couple, one of the spouses is running their business out of their home and then they get divorced? Or if as part of the settlement, they get a lost income settlement amount, are they entitled to recover based on community property 50-50 split like the same as you would for property damage? Gee, we're out of time on that one. We'll have to do it. No, I'm only kidding. No, I'm just kidding. That's an interesting question, but not really all that hard because the residents had a characterization and the business that happened to be operating within the business, within the residence will also have its characterization. It might be separate. It might be community pursuant to what we call a Pereira or Van Camp analysis. It might have been a separate property business started before marriage with an enhanced value during the marriage. So we'll have a a community value component and we'll simply take those characterizations and apply them to the proceeds. So in your hypothetical, Stephanie, there'll be a recovery for the house and there'll be a recovery for the business. The house's recovery will be split equally and the business recovery will be divided depending upon the claims of the parties to the business. If the business was 50% separate, and let's call it a 50% community interest, the division will go three quarters, one quarter. Hey, Ron, so final thoughts from you, Ron, on this very interesting topic? Well, it's a fascinating subject. What I would advise my friends in the plaintiff's bar is don't be shy to call us up when you first see the issue coming, right? It's actually easier to ask for permission rather than before the fact than forgiveness after the fact. We can work with you. We can get help from the family law court to try and keep you in the case because you want to stay in the case. Ron, what's your email address in case people want to reach out to you? Brot at bgfllp.com. That's B-R-O-T at B-G-F-L-L-P.com. Brian. And thank you for being with us, Ron. This has been terrific. Stephanie, thank you for sitting in for Shant. I can certainly say that you're a substantial improvement over him. And we appreciate you being here. And right. we hope you join us next time. So Ron Brode, family law lawyer extraordinaire, been our guest today. Thank you all very much for listening in. Hey, thank you for listening today. We really appreciate it. This is Brian Kabatek. You can reach me at BSK at kbklawyers.com. And I'm Sean Kernick, and you can find me online at sk at kbklawyers.com. And as you might have guessed, our website is kbklawyers.com. You could find us on all social media platforms at Cabotech LLP. We like putting on the show. We appreciate you listening. If you can go online and like us, give us ratings, follow us on all the different platforms. If you know someone that practices in a particular area and you, you think they might find this useful, feel free to share it with them and feel free to reach out to us. If you have any questions, if you want to bring an interesting case to our attention, you have a potential case you want advice on from us, we'd be happy to help you out if we can. And we'd love to hear from you. 